Hi, and welcome to the seventh episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. The goal of this podcast is to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. Our company develops analytics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and try to have some cool, interesting fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by Mike Farron, baseball talk show host for Sirius XM MLB Radio and a broadcaster for the Arizona Diamondbacks. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will look at leaderboards, talk about research our company is doing, we'll answer listener questions, and much more. We'll start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... Batter Up! So it's funny, we've done a bunch of these monologues, and we've called them all Batter Up! despite the fact that none of them have been about batters. And this one's going to be about a fielder as well. What Diamondbacks pitcher Zach Greinke is doing these days is amazing. I'm not talking about the win-loss record, the ERA, or the strikeout-to-walk ratio. I'm talking about his continued defensive excellence. In writing an article for The Athletic about defensive all-stars, I was lamenting the lack of plays to watch for pitchers until I got to Greinke. Zach is blowing the field away in terms of his range factor, his putouts and assists while minimizing errors. Greinke is the true definition of a fifth infielder. His follow-through puts him in an ideal ready position to handle anything. Heck, sometimes he throws that ethos curve slow enough that he could probably sprint to one side of the field before the pitch reaches home plate. I'm kidding, but maybe not. Point being, he's quick off the mound to get to balls hit to either side. His throws are almost always perfect. Additionally, Greinke is as good as it gets in base-running deterrence. In each of the last three seasons, he's had more caught stealing than stolen bases allowed. His career caught stealing percentage as a pitcher is nearly double league average. Granke is probably a season away from passing Mark Burley for the most defensive run saved by a pitcher since that stat was first tracked in 2003. And think about the impact that 80-plus runs saved has had on his career. It's all part of his Hall of Fame-worthy package. Mike Farron is every thinking baseball fan's best friend. As the host of Power Alley on Sirius XM, he and former GM Jim Duquette give well-informed takes on all the important issues in baseball. As the pregame show host and secondary play-by-play radio announcer for the Diamondbacks, Mike's works with Treg Schulte and Tom Candiotti to provide a variety of perspectives on the national pastime. He often uses sabermetrics to stimulate discussion in both jobs. Mike, thanks for joining us. I thank you for the kind introduction, although I'm not sure if with friends like me, but he wouldn't want to find better friends. So. But Mike Farron, one of the top uh, baseball voices in, uh, I think you would say, sabermetric Twitter. And uh, for that audience and for this audience, I ask you first, who's the best team in baseball right now? Who's the best team in baseball? Um, I think... Um, that's a good question. I'm inclined to say that the best team is probably Houston um, overall, just because I think the data supports that the most. But part of me thinks it might be the Dodgers. Um, And that could just be because – so, like, it's really difficult to try and evaluate the two leagues right now because there's such a great disparity between the top and the bottom in the American League, whereas the National League has far greater balance. Um, that it, it, I think it's it's difficult to see. Like when when the Astros have to go out of the division and play the Yankees, like over the course of the weekend, like they're facing a far tougher level of competition than say when the Dodgers step outside the division. 
but Los Angeles consistently has to play better teams, I think, than Houston does, even though the, the West seems to be uh, a little bit more balanced or more robust than um, the other divisions in the American League. So I, I would guess that I would say Houston, um, uh, but I would l- offer the caveat that, that Los Angeles is is the team that's in the mix that's a sleeper. Did I get the question right? Because I didn't actually <laughs> look at the numbers beforehand. I want to know. Well, no, you're, you're talking. The data support what I say. You're talking, but the, you're talking that the numbers support both those teams. I think it's no coincidence that those are the two of the top defensive teams in baseball too, right? First of all, I think, and, and I know you love defense, and obviously BIS loves defense, and so, like, the quality of defensive play around the league, I think, has improved exponentially in the last decade. Like, very rarely do you have the and – and I hate to pick on him because obviously he was a, a really good offensive player for a long time. But Adam Dunn was a dreadful outfielder, right? Like, that guy was, a, like, just a well below – not even a well below. Like, he was a, a – like a three or a two on the scouting scale, right? Like at the very bottom of it. And you just don't see very many of those guys anymore. Like even if you're using, you know, DRS or you're using, you know, if you wanted to step outside the BIS realm and use like outs above average, like there are a couple of guys that are down at the bottom of the list right now, but, but they have athleticism and you feel like, well, you know, like with a couple of adjustments, Clint Frazier could bop back up or Domingo Santana or whoever some of those guys are. And we just don't have the, the lumbering corner outfielder anymore or the, the you know, past the diving Jeter shortstop. So, um, so I think defense as a whole is better. Um, and I think defense looks better, too, because you have more bat missers. But you're right in that Houston does a really good job of converting balls into outs. Um, I think Los Angeles does as well. I think their positioning probably helps Corey Seager some, but I also think that when Seager plays, that he gets a little bit overlooked because of his size as to how steady he is. So, um, you know, I think they are both very good defensive teams. I think there are some teams that, you know, I'm fortunate to see the Diamondbacks every day, and I think it's a really good defensive team, and it has been over the last couple of years, and I think that's one of the reasons why they consistently seem like they surprise people is because they catch the ball really, really well. They position exceptionally. And I know you guys have written about that, but they, they also have some pretty tremendous defensive athletes when you add Marte and Ahmed and Dyson to the mix. Positioning also uh, eliminates the, the guys like the Adam Duns because it, it saves them from looking as bad as they are. Right. Right. I mean, I think that there's some of that, but I also think that there's been, I think what you've seen is that those guys, there just aren't very many of those that phylum of player anymore that just i mean the the chris carters of the world even you know if you want to go more recent than that um there just aren't that those players that teams are seem to be looking for more athleticism because now everybody can hit home runs because of the baseball so um there's not necessarily that need to try and find how do we hide this guy defensively to take advantage i mean if you really think about it guys that you know, if you were to take away the statistics from and just try and evaluate whether or not you thought that they were had a capability of being, a, a, a you know, at least an adequate defender, like you're, you're starting to get down to like, like the Dan Vogelbach and Jose Martinez are about it, um, where they're just kind of bat only guys and they don't offer you a whole lot of defensive versatility. One topic that I, I wanted to discuss that we were talking about in the office that I think you have good firsthand information on. You were talking about the Diamondbacks and their defensive positioning and then the gloves and such. Defensive savvy managers. I feel like there are, there are more uh, now maybe than there had been a few years ago just because of the availability of the data. But besides Chori, 
Uh, Tori Lavulo, who, who are your picks for some of the more defense-savvy managers in baseball? Well, I think it's tough to just uh, assign it to a manager. I think it's All right, uh, because I think that that role has changed. You know, I think it's organizational. You know, um, I think what you're seeing is that you're seeing um, teams that have managers that like, so like they're running more like corporations in that instead of having somebody who is managing the team that does not, that offers their own separate ideas that may run contrary to what the organization feels overall that everybody is is much more in lockstep in that regard and so i think that that has an impact on on how managers use their defense and and what's what's expected of them and you're basically you're selecting for teams that are that or your, your teams are selecting for managers that are already going to be in and of that bull so um, I think what you see is anybody that comes out of the Tampa Bay school, I think specifically with, you know, obviously Kevin Cash, um, who's there now. I think Joe Madden, I think, um, you know, Rocco Baldelli. I think those are guys that are probably defense oriented. I think, um, you know, Los Angeles and Houston, you mentioned them. I think the Diamondbacks are one of those teams certainly that fits that mold. Um, you know, I think that there are some teams that, that maybe don't score as well statistically that are, defense oriented i do think the angels are a team that that's really defense oriented in the way that they they build things and try to build things i think the cardinals attempt to be because i think they're trying to to um you know take away some of the defensive deficiencies and i think you know i've been guilty of underrating the way that they position their shortstops i mean if you look at defensive run saved it's been pretty pretty um favorable for paul the young and and before him johnny peralta you know who aren't necessarily guys that you look at as shortstops so I think I, I think most teams, I think most organizations, you know, they have some sort of of uh, you know idea, and I and I do think that defense is playing a greater importance, despite the fact that it's being used less. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Atlanta in this too, because I really think their infield defense, in particular, is good. Their outfield defense is tremendous athletes, and I think when they run an outfield defense of Marquez in Ciarte. And Acuna specifically, it's really good. But Ron Washington, Ron Washington is such a tremendous defensive coach. Um, the amount of time that he spends hitting fungos to guys and ensuring that they're working on drills, to constantly keep working on a daily basis, individual work. He's indefatigable in the amount of work that he is able to put in with guys. And I don't know that that's necessarily shown up in all of the metrics as to how they are defensively, but that's a team that I would say definitely has a focus on it in part because of the coaching staff that they have in place. Shifting to something more fun, but sticking with defense, we were batting this around. If you could be any player in baseball and have his defensive skills, which defensive player would you want to be? You know, this is funny because we actually kind of had this discussion between the innings of the game on Thursday. Tim Castro was playing center field for the Diamondbacks and uh, made two really good running catches up against the fence, one crashing into it. And we kind of said, geez, wouldn't it be nice to, to know what it's like for one day to run like that? <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it hurts if he's crashing into the fence. Yeah, I mean, like this is this is a this is like a role player, but he's an elite runner, right? So, so like I think probably I love center fielders, so I think Byron Buxton would probably be the guy whose skills I would want. I, I would want him, or I would want a shortstop with some level of creativity. I would want to be, you know what it's like to be Baez or Simmons um, for a day. Just somebody who's not just a, a really 
great defender, but one who is creative as well, or Arenado, you know, those kinds of players, I think that those would be the ones that I would want to be for a day. Not Jeff Mathis for his pit framing? No, I don't like, I, I never liked Kathy. All right. Um, a couple of other things for Mike Farron, uh, Diamondbacks broadcaster. Uh, you mentioned uh, Kittel Marte before. Uh, shortstop, second baseman who converted to center field and kind of came back. Uh, how has he been as good as he's been this season? He's one of the most uh, amazing stories in baseball this year. On the offensive side, I think the biggest thing is that he's gained more confidence as a left-handed hitter. He made a slight, slight change in his setup where he lowered his hands. And instead of being a guy who spent the first half of last year trying to slap the ball around the field, He's looking to drive the ball from the left side of the plate, and I think that that's a big, um, a big difference. Like I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and they were like, you know, if you really stand next to Marte, he's he's not just some you know live middle infielder. He's built more like an NFL running back, and he has that kind of athleticism too. And so I think part of it was just right-handed is his natural swing. He's always had. Uh, more power and, and look to do more damage. I think finding ways to balance that out from the left side is what's helped to lead to, um, you know, this offensive breakout. And listen, I don't know that he's going to be a 40 homer guy, but I do think that he's a pretty real offensive player going forward. I mean, he has, he doesn't strike out a whole lot. He puts the ball in play. He's got right around a league average or just a tick below walk rate. Um, you know, and he uses, he's capable of using the whole field. He's got really good bat-to-ball skills. Like I think he's going to hit for a high average, and maybe the power comes back just a tick, but um, but he's still a, a, a tremendous offensive threat. And then add into that NFL-style athleticism, the fact that you know he's worked really hard to be a great infielder. He carries himself with a significant amount of confidence. Um, you know, his nickname is Pique. Uh, which is uh, in Dominican Spanish is slang for swagger. And he kind of plays that way. And uh, one, of, one of the things I absolutely love about him is that he's got this flair to him. Um, but he's a, he has worked really hard to become a good defensive infielder. And I think that the athleticism translates really well to center field. I think he gets good jumps on the ball. I think he's worked really worked well with Dave McKay, who's the, the D-backs outfield instructor and one of the best outfield instructors in baseball to try and you know, get an idea of, of taking better routes. And, and I think he's, he's really acceptable. Like he learns really fast. There was a, a game early this season where the wind was howling in at Wrigley field. And there was a ball that was hit over his head that he just couldn't get a feel for and ended up going for a double. And on the very next play, there was a similar, a ball that was very similar to a very similar spot. And he was able to get back, make the adjustment and make the catch. And so I think that those kind of things show you what kind of talent he is. And I think, I, I think he's going to be a really, really good player for a long time. I'm a big fan. Now, uh, you don't just have uh, Marte in terms of athleticism. You have uh, Nick, you get to watch Nick Ahmed and Nick Ahmed's steadiness at shortstop. And we just wrote a piece for The Athletic where we tried to pick all-star teams just based on defense for both leagues. And the hardest position to do was shortstop in the National League and, and between Ahmed and Baez and Iglesias. And you mentioned DeYoung. And there were so many different choices. Who do you choose? Well, I, I mean, I clearly have some bias in this, yes. but I get to see Nick Ahmed every day, um, and there are very few plays that he can't make. So, I mean, my choice would be would be Nick. Yeah, I mean, we we know that you're biased there. Who's second then? Second would be Baez, I think. I mean, I think that that's I think Baez would be the other one, and, and for for the reasons I listed before, 
Yep. Um, you know, in terms of his creativity, like the, the just how quick his hands are. I mean, those things. That would be my my second guy. I mean, I think Ahmed and Ahmed and Iglesias are actually pretty similar to me. I think Iglesias got this reputation as being a really flashy shortstop because he came from Cuba, but I view him as being a very steady defender. And and I think and and sometimes that can sell a guy short. I mean, Nick Ahmed is also a really good athlete athlete um and works extremely hard at his craft I and mean, he has tremendous hands and as i know you guys have run run data on his accuracy throwing the ball i mean one of the most accurate throwing shortstops if not the most accurate throwing shortstop in baseball so um you know like i think i think even with the bias i think nick is a beyond defensible choice i mean he's he it was actually deserving of winning the gold glove last year i think he's a tremendous defensive player I think he's probably the best all-round defensive infielder in the National League. But if I had to pick somebody that I didn't cover, it would be Baez. All right, two more questions for Mike Farron. Uh, that one, that one took us kind of a long time to to sift through, certainly. But we, I think, we came to the the same conclusion as you. We went with uh, Ahmed uh, with Bias as the alternate. Is there someone who should we who we should appreciate on defense that we don't? And I throw that with the fact that any time that we don't put Javier Baez as the best shortstop in the National League, Cub fans tell us how much we don't appreciate him. So is there someone besides that who we should appreciate a bit? I mean, like that's the case, right? With everything, like I just got, we were just talking about the all-star voting yep. and recently and how fans have actually traditionally done a very good job of it. And of course, somebody's complaining that Anthony Rendon is fifth. Like, you know, your, your guy is never as appreciated uh, as they are. I think to me, I think the most underappreciated player in baseball, in my estimation, is Matt Chapman with the A's. And I think part of it is because he plays in Oakland, which probably doesn't get the same activity despite the fact that it's in a part of a large market it uh, doesn't get necessarily the same uh, interest um as some other other teams do um and that's part of it and i think the other part of it is that that he's playing in this golden era of third baseman where there are a lot of stars at third base it's the same thing that happens to rendon right in that and that he gets overlooked there um and then add into it that Chapman would be the best defensive third baseman hands down in just about any other era that he played in, but he's also playing at the same time that Nolan Arenado and Manny Machado are, are at third base. <laughs> so, like, like that to me is like it's totally unfair to Matt Chapman, but that guy is unbelievable. And the, I think what's so cool about him and Machado and Arenado is that they go about it in different ways. You know, Machado is flashy and cool and Arenado, everything is hyper, hyper, hyper. And Chapman is just get into a position where you can make the play and then let the 97 mile hour fastball go up yep. to the diamond. So um, I, to me, it's Chapman. I think that that's the guy that, is underappreciated in every aspect of his game, but it's, like again, he just gets overlooked because Arnado Machado are more famous than him defensively. But but Chapman is right there <laughs> with them. I, I couldn't pick between the three. He's not underappreciated in our office. I can tell you that Matt Chapman you know, might be the I, favorite. Well, I, that, but, you know, I think outside of your office, he probably is. I mean, I guarantee <laughs> he's not underappreciated in the A's clubhouse too. I mean, right. the guy's a three and a half win player. You know. Yep. All right, last question. We've asked this of David Cohn. We asked this of Joe Sheehan. We ask it now of uh, every sabermetric uh, baseball fan's best friend. Uh, can you invent a stat for us? What stat would you like us to invent? What stat would I like you to invent? I would like, I don't know if that's necessarily an invent, but I think I would like to draw 
better attention to hitters who get themselves into counts to do damage and then do damage. So I think part of approach, and I realize that defense is the specialty, but I think that this, no, is, this is something that, that I would look at that I think is, I think is a really important aspect of hitting. Who is consistently getting themselves into hitters counts and the damage hitter counts? So like 203031 and then doing damage. And what percentage are they doing it in? It's something that I track at the end of seasons to just have an idea of where it is. But I think that's something that's actually really important to being a good offensive player. And like some of them are, are counterintuitive. I think balls in play on 01 counts actually tend to be pretty good. Like that's even though it's you know a one strike count. I mean, I think after 01, um, the the advantage used to the pitcher, but on balls put in play on 01 counts, I think the numbers are actually pretty good for hitters. Yep. So like taking advantage of that and taking a look at count management is something that I think we do a really poor job of as an analytic community, because what we have done is we focus so much on the result and not the process, which is just runs completely contrary to what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Right. So guys who have good approaches, not everybody who walks a lot has a good approach. Some of them are really passive. The guys who have really good approaches are the ones who get themselves into counts to be able to do damage specifically what are traditionally fastball counts, and then torch the ball. And I think that that's, if we wanted to make strides in what is a pretty crowded offensive market for analysis, that would be the number one thing I would be focused on. So it's like a chase percentage in a 1-0 count or uh, something along those lines combined with a couple of other counts and, and things of that sort to, to essentially put yourself in position and then damage on, I guess it's 2-0-3-1, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it's chase percentage on it. I think it's, I think it's just ability to get into those counts. And I think, I think studying that to see, you know, how consistent that is year to year, you know, how consistent that is, you know, for are there players that are really good at getting into it annually? Are some of them better in other years than uh, than others? Do we then start to relook at things like, okay, well, you know, this guy. Um, last year was, you know, got into these counts 15% of the time, which I think would be about twice the league average, but this year it's only about 8%. Well, why is that? What's happened this year that's prevented him from getting into those? Is it, is there actually more fluidity in the lineup? I want to use the, the dreaded P word for protection, but are there things that have affected the lineup around him that, that are forcing him to be pitched to more or pitched differently? I do think it's an important aspect. It's not necessarily just swing decisions, on those counts, you know, like chasing outside the zone right. in plus counts, but getting yourself into in counts where you can do damage. Because I do think that there's there's a little bit of research on this that I've talked to minor league getting coaches about that on balls in play, especially on fastballs, that guys have had success in plus counts when they go out of the zone because they're being more aggressive in that, right? And so you want to take advantage of those opportunities, use that aggression. So I think that that's something that I would, I would, I wish I had more hours in the day because that's something I would like to dedicate to study. <laughs> I think you may have given one of our guys uh, his next research project. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. We appreciate well, the time. Yeah, of course, Mark. It's great to talk to you. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. 
just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. We move on to our segment called Instant Replay. That's where we look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. We'll share leaderboards and interesting stats. Andrew Kine from Research and Development joins me now. Um, I guess the first thing I would ask you is, what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen in the last couple of weeks? So I actually have two answers for this question. Uh, one being Matt Carpenter's bunt double against the shift against the Miami Marlins the other night. The Marlins had four infielders to the right of second base. He dropped a bunt down, and the pitcher ended up chasing after it, and he got a double. Uh, and that's something that we've talked about a few times, whether it be just extreme overshifts or foreign outfields or bunts against the shift. And Carpenter. Yeah, right. So we've talked about Carpenter's extreme batted ball tendencies and why you would shift against him and whether or not you should bunt and all that. Uh, so he actually laid down a super, super successful one. Uh, and then the other one I wanted to bring up was Kenley Jansen's uh, intentional balk that he had against the Cubs when uh, they had two outs in the ninth. Uh, Dodgers were up by two. There was a man on second, and he didn't want any signs being stolen, so he intentionally boxed. He throws 90% cutters. Well, I guess you could also uh, potentially argue that it maybe necessarily wasn't the pitch type, but the pitch location, so you could tip off whether the catcher was setting up inside, outside, high or low maybe, but I I thought that was interesting uh, and and definitely an interesting uh, strategy. (laughs) All right, so going back to the Carpenter thing, um, there was an, a uh, long discussion on the Met broadcast about this and the idea of should you shift him, should you not, because Jacob deGrom got upset uh, when the Mets shifted him, and he got a hit against the shift, uh, and it wound up costing the Mets a run. And there are a lot of different factors that are going into shift decisions. And it's funny, on the other end for the Mets, it doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes opposing teams have been shifting Jeff McNeil. And I was watching the Met Brave game uh, about a week ago, and the Braves were shifting him, and the Met broadcasters couldn't understand why they would do that. And sure enough, if you look at the numbers, Jeff McNeil has benefited more from defensive shifts than any hitter in baseball. You've essentially taken someone who probably would have grounded out 16 or 17 out of 20 times and turned him into a 500 guy because when he gets shifted, he goes the other way half the time. He's really good at that. Um, I think it's fascinating to watch the approach it's like a Tony Gwynn or they were talking on MLB Network they were, they were comparing him to Wade Boggs a little bit uh it's a cool approach at the plate uh and I just thought that, that was uh kind of a neat thing uh let's talk about some of the research that we've done uh recently you've done a couple of projects uh was there one that you wanted to talk about in particular yeah so we were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago about players who had changed positions and, and potentially how their DRS had changed and couple of the interesting ones I think were Adam Jones and Charlie Blackman who have both moved from center field to right field this year and both of whom uh, rated rather poorly in center field last year. Um, so those were two interesting ones that, that I kind of want to take a more uh, macro level view of and, and look at all players who have made kind of a, a change like that. And what we ended up looking at was we looked at the range and positioning component of DRS and how that changes when a guy moves from center to a corner or even from a corner to center. And the important thing to, to note is that DRS is relative to players' uh, own positions. So they're being judged uh, last year, like Blackman or Jones, they were being judged relative to other center fielders. And there's a lot of really good center fielders. So 
uh, we're looking at, we wanted to know, you know, if a guy like that moves from center to right, how exactly are their DRS numbers expected to change just because they're going to be basically judged against a different set of players. Uh, and, and obviously there's other effects like the ballpark and aging effects and whatnot. Um, but on average, players who have moved from center field uh, to a corner improve their range and positioning runs saved by about eight runs per 1,000 innings on average. And uh, players who had moved from a corner to center actually uh, declined by about seven runs per 1,000 on average. Uh, so those were, were the main findings. And um, Jones and Blackman have both been better uh, this year by by DRS, and that's something that uh, you know they're still not great. They're still a little bit below average relative to other right fielders. Uh, but just moving positions they're is something. They're hurting their team less, right? Yeah, they're hurting their team less, and just by making that switch, it's kind of what we would expect to see. A couple of other articles that are on the uh, Sports Info Solutions blog, sportsinfosolutionsblog.com that you should check out. Andrew also did another thing that was pretty cool, comparing home runs and where the sweet spots are. Uh, for in terms of pitch locations uh, for hitters comparing this year to five years ago. And he put up a really cool uh, GIF that shows that the hot zones have uh, not just gotten hotter, but they've expanded for both left and right-handed hitters, which is a pretty cool look. Uh, we have articles on a couple of art articles related to the outfield, a treetop view of what an MLB outfield needs. That was uh, one that was done by one of our video scouts and another one done by a video scout. Uh, which outfielders struggled the most playing balls off the wall? Not surprisingly, one guy who plays uh, in front of a very big wall uh, tends to have problems. One guy, not as much. Uh, it's worth a read if you can get a, a chance. Sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. Uh, we, we thank anyone that uh, chooses to read that or chooses to read what we put on The Athletic. Once a week, we do a piece for The Athletic. Uh, this week, this past week, we did defensive all-stars. We tried to pick a, a uh, all-star team for the National League and the American League. Not easy. Uh, a lot of positions that were uh, particularly challenging. We mentioned it with Mike Farron. NL shortstop was really hard. AL center field was really hard. The pitching spots were really hard, even in spite of what I said about Zach Greinke. Uh, it was it was really difficult to do. Were there guys that I, I may have left out that you think should be on kind of like the second team? Yeah, so I thought I thought one that was kind of challenging was uh, American League shortstops because you picked Andrew Glenn Simmons, even though he's actually sure. injured. Yeah, he's injured right now. Uh, and Marcus Simeon is having a good year by DRS. And that's something that I think I typically struggle with just in general ulcer voting is that you know, do you go with the guy who has a really good track record or do you go with the guy who's maybe having a breakout or a really good season? Um, and I thought that, that Simeon has made a lot of, you know, really good improvements. We saw another athletic article by Ken Rosenthal talking about that uh, and how hard Simeon has, has worked to improve his defense. So I thought that one was tough, and I think I'd give him the edge just because Simmons has been injured. Uh, but So my, my reasoning for not including Simeon there was if you looked at the good fielding plays, we track good fielding plays and misplays. Our video scouts watch every game, and we have 30 different categories of good, 60 categories of bad. Uh, and Marcus Semien's like a one good for every three bad ratio, and I felt like that brought him down a notch, uh, that in spite of the improvements that he's made, and I don't doubt that he's made many, uh, I felt that that was, that was incentive, I guess, to keep uh, with a guy like Simmons. That's fair. And I, you know, I think another one that is just obvious is American League center field, which you mentioned. It's kind of 1A and 1B with Buxton and Kiermaier. So I think you could have gone either way. You can't win with that one. Right. Yeah. So that's tough. 
Uh, but there, there's other positions too where I think there's deserving second teamers. NL shortstop, there's Trevor Story, Javi Baez, Paul DeYoung, all very good. I like Nick Ahmed a lot, so I don't think that was a bad pick. Austin Hedges is having a great year behind the plate, but JT Realmuto is actually one that you've written about as well, having a good DRS season. Um, so those are, I think, the, the more obvious ones. And then I thought that from a difficulty of choosing a position, I thought that second base for both leagues was kind of hard. LeMahieu and Wong both had good years last year, and they're having good years again this year. But I don't think there have really necessarily been any other like standouts. Um, so I thought those were hard, and maybe first base too. Uh, but I was curious if you had any other difficult positions. Well, I want to touch on that because I feel like the flash has been taken out of defense at those spots uh, because of defensive positioning. We actually uh, charted this the other day that what we score as good fielding plays are down like 25, 30% from three, four years ago. Now that's due partly to strikeouts, but we also think that that could be due to positioning. So you have uh, you have less opportunities when you're in a shift and a ball's hit right at you than uh, when you're not. And I'll I'll give you one guy that I've really liked because I've had to I've watched him a good amount this year. Joe Panic has been very good this year, uh, both with flash and consistency. Uh, I felt he was a uh, worthy guy to want. Transitioning slightly, same question that I asked Ferrin: Is there a defensive player who essentially you wish you could be? I like this question a lot, and I thought of a few different you know, possible angles when I was trying to work through it. Uh, the first one I was thinking of a guy who maybe had like a strong arm because when I was playing, I didn't have such a strong arm and I always really wanted one. Uh, and then I was trying to think maybe, you know, someone who uh, plays a lot of positions and plays them well, like I think it'd be pretty cool to be able to move around and be able to do it successfully, like a Kike Hernandez or a Marwin Gonzalez. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's hard to not uh, just look at a guy like Buxton and see – the, the speed, the range, the center field, all of it kind of together uh, in, you know, kind of just want to be someone like that. Uh, so I'd probably say a Byron Buxton. Uh, but that, that was how I kind of approached it. You and Mike Farron both take the same guy, Byron Buxton. Uh, all right, good call. So I was looking for, I was like trying to come up with traits that I really respect in players, people, and reliability would certainly be one. So I want a guy who's going to be really good every year and who's going to make every play uh, every year. Uh, so I like, because I, I wouldn't want to play center field because there's too much injury risk there crashing into fences. Uh, so I don't think I'd want to be an outfielder. I felt like Andrelton was more the guy for me. Uh, I said to Mike, uh, Farron, would you take Jeff Mathis? I'd love to be a catcher who could steal strikes, uh, but the injury factor, the ball, foul balls hitting in the head repeatedly, I don't, th- I don't think I would handle that well. So I think I would lean Andrelton Simmons, but I'm not like Nick Ahmed would also be a good choice because he's just kind of, he's reliable. He's not necessarily a, a superstar, uh, but he's reliable. I want to do a uh, listener email, our listener email of the week. That one comes from Katie Sharp, good friend of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in, Katie. Uh, Katie asked, with the 30 different categories of good fielding plays that you have, which player has essentially checked the most boxes, meaning has had a good fielding play in the most different categories? Andrew actually looked this up. So this season, there's actually a tie at the top of the list. We have Cody Ballinger and Matt Chapman, both with 11 different categories, which seeing those two wasn't super surprising. They've been uh, two of the better uh, defensive players by DRS this year. Um, and Bellinger has probably helped a little bit by the fact that he's played both infield and outfield. So he's had that, he's had opportunities to make, you know, good ground ball outs as well as good fly ball outs. Um, and then last year, 
we had an infielder at the top, uh, Javi Baez, a typical fan favorite with his magical plays in the field, had 16 different categories. I mean, we appreciate you. I promise we appreciate you here at Sports Info Solutions. He's the three-time Fielding Bible multi-position uh, award winner, uh, Javi Baez. All right, so best guys rise to the top on that. Uh, thanks for the e- uh, email question of the week or the Twitter question of the week, I guess it's, I should say, uh, Katie Sharp. Uh, KT Sharp on Twitter. Thanks a lot. Good friend of uh, Sports Info Solutions. All right. If you want to send us a question, you can send it to sportsinfo underscore SIS. Maybe we'll answer it on the air. All right. Last thing of the show, we are going to do the ridiculous number of the day. Ridiculous numbers of the day. All right. You're up first. We're doing it in the form of trivia again because it was a popular way to do it last week. Uh, one person let us know how much they appreciated that we did it as a trivia question you ask i'll try and answer all right so there's currently a player who through thursday has had 194 plate appearances for the season and a 446 batting average on balls in play if you go all the way back to as far as fangrass goes and set the minimum plate appearances to 190 it's the highest BABIP on record at that plate appearance threshold and your hint is that he is a National League rookie, if that helps. I know it's difficult. Is it, is it Alex Verdugo? It is not. Uh, see, I was going to ask Brandon Dixon, uh, because Brandon Dixon has like 44 strikeouts and four walks, and he's hitting like 280. Uh, National League rookie. Is it uh, Reynolds, Brian Reynolds? Correct. All right. <laughs> now my turn to stump you. All right, that, but that's a great ridiculous stat. 446 Babbitt, how the heck is he going to keep that up? Was did he have a good deserve Babbitt? Like was his expected all right? So his expected numbers based on quality of contact that we look at actually has his expected Babbitt at 401, which is still pretty ridiculous in itself. Um, like you said, probably not sustainable, uh, but really good start to the season and, and to the career for the rookie Brian Reynolds. All right, now I get to stump you. Uh, so Freddie Freeman leads the majors in hard hit balls. We actually track hard hit balls here, uh, just like Statcast does. A little bit different criteria. Uh, we uh, are probably a little bit more lenient with regards to what's called a hard hit ball. It depends on where the ball's hit, how fast it's hit, uh, and what type of batted ball it is. Here's 122. Uh, that puts him on pace to break the record for the time that we've tracked. That goes back to about 2004, so that's where I started the, the search. So from 2004 to 2019, what player holds the record for most hard-hit balls in a season with 253? Your hint is he had a lot of at-bats. Um, so the first, I mean, the first name that, that popped in my head, just because we were going back all the way to 2004, would have been Albert Pujols. Um, but Marcus Shagan said no. Um, he had a lot of at bats. Can we get more specific with the time period? <laughs> in the, it's more in the early part of the time of BIS than the latter part. It's a player you know. It's a player I know, but you have to keep in mind that I was pretty young <laughs> at that time. <laughs> it's it's a player who played through until pretty recently. David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez. You're gonna have to tell me. The answer is. Jimmy Rollins, 253 in 2007 as a member of the Phillies, the season he had over 700 at-bats in a year. So that is your stumper on the ridiculous question of the day. And with that, we wrap up the seventh episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. 
For our guest, Mike Farron, our producer, Justin Stein, and my colleague, Andrew Kine, this is Mark Simon. See you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.